acknowledging that in the workforce or with teams, it's not always going to be easy. But having the conversation around that and actually working on resilience and working on, on toughness and grit and actually making people work hard and get rewarded for it. I think that's really, really important. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today is CEO and founder of Strive Stronger, author of the best-selling Match Fit and the mental skills coach for the Manly Sea Eagles National Rugby League Club. With dual degrees that cover both body and brain, he took up a Bachelor of Applied Science in Exercise Physiology and a Master's of Coaching Psychology at the University of Sydney. He's also exploring a PhD in Performance Psychology, aiming to crack the code of high-pressure moments. All right, so there's something we have a lot in common. And from a former middle-distance runner to assisting top-tier athletes at the Australian Institute of Sport, this powerhouse guest is a regular face on ABC News Breakfast and the host of Business Fit Podcast and Performance Intelligence Podcast. I have the privilege of introducing a fitness junkie who loves things like swimming, yoga and surfing, a former managing partner at KPNG after they acquired his company, The Performance Clinic, and as part of IBO World Boxing Champion Tim Sue's team, Andrew May. Andrew, welcome to the show. Yeah, you've done your research, Craig. Uh, good to be here. Uh, you're welcome. Now, I know you've kind of stepped off the footy field and, and out of a number of podcasts today. So let's dive on in. I'm curious, you know, where did you grow up and what was the big dream when you ran around the playgrounds as a child? I was born in Wagga Wagga in the Riverina and then we moved to Gleninus. Uh, in the New England Tablelands. So if I go back to Glenness, it's interesting you say running around because running chose me. Uh, I got a bronze medal when I was in year seven in the 800 metres in the CHS uh, State Championships. And then I realised, huh, I, I think if I train a little bit more, I might actually do something with this. So then I realised running is something that I wanted to do. So I had big dreams, big goals to go to the Olympics. My dad was a good footballer. I, I was good at footballer as a, at a young age, but middle distance bodies don't really match with rugby union physiques mm. so i found i went from five eight to inside center outside center wing full back on the bench you're following the story <laughs> so yeah it was way back when i was in year seven i planted a seed around high performance and you don't know that at, at you know, 12 13 years of age and i loved it the the fuel i felt that invigoration i felt by doing a little bit of work and getting a reward it got me hooked and I think I've been chasing, yeah, in inverted commas, trophies and rewards and acknowledgement ever since. Yeah, it's fascinating, you know, that having something to kind of uh, sink your teeth into and really go for that and, and put a bit of drive into is is a, something really exciting when you're young. Were, were there any kind of strong mentors around you during those formative years that were, you know, really had a huge impact on who you are today? Yeah, there were a couple. Gosh, you're, you're taking me back down memory lane. There was a guy named John Quinn, who is the Little Athletics New South Wales Development Officer. And uh, we left Glen and this went to Yass, and then John started coaching me, and I won my first state championship. So then I started 
to really learn about hard work and reward. And I've got to pick up on what I said before at a young age, you know, chasing trophies, collecting awards. If you have a life focused on achievement, if there's no meaning or fulfillment, you can have all this external success, but you're a miserable bastard. Mm. So uh, John really taught me some of the mechanics about running, opened up a few doors. And I also was watching him as a coach and that also planned to the next scene, which was to help others. So yeah, the genesis of all that really went back to that period. And even upon reflecting, I haven't gone back on this for quite some time. It's interesting, isn't it, how those mentors, those people in our younger years really do have a massive impact on us. And going back to you know, running and then teaching other people to run, we moved from Yas to Dubbo. And I started coaching at a young age. I was still in little athletics, but then I just love coaching. So the threads of that being a performer, because I think to teach high performance, it really gives you an advantage to have been a high performer. Mm. Now, I think there's some people that teach high performance out of a lab or out of a textbook, and you can have models and theories and frameworks, which is important. The rig is important, but I think if you have that, and this is how it felt, those two together is a really good combination. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And um, we can talk about a couple of those high performance things later on. Uh, especially when we get look at high-performing teams because I feel like there's a lot of fluffy stuff out there at the moment in the world and there's not really enough around, okay, that might sound good and that might feel good, but that it, does it actually make it a high-performing team? So we'll go into that a bit later on. Yeah, and I'll, I'll hold back, but I'll keep your listeners uh, waiting. I, I think a lot of it is absolute bullshit. It's, it's horrible, mm -hmm. some of the content i see and hear around high performing teams so we'll get to that oh good all right there we go we've we've sowed a seed already <laughs> so keep an eye out for that uh, so when you were going through those high school years obviously you're focused on yourself and you know, how you can be high performing you started doing a bit of coaching but were you would you consider yourself more of a leader or follower during those teenage years more of a follower and I've actually changed my whole definition or my whole appreciation of followership in the last couple of years. And it's because we've had the, it's been an amazing opportunity to work with the Australian Navy, which has now opened up to opportunities to also work with you know, Allied Defence, so with Air Force and Army and also um, uh, a lot of public servants as well from Australian Defence. And, and back then, I would say I was a follower. But what the Army and especially the Navy has taught is there's a skill in following. Mm. So Whereas I think in the Western world, many of us, Craig, we have this thought that oh, she's a leader, he's a follower, and you either lead or you follow. But I think you need both. Yeah. And, and in a high-performing team, having real clear leadership, authentic leadership, but then having people who know actually how to follow a plan and implement a plan and knowing your job. So it's really challenged and it's totally changed my my definition of followership. I think in the old days, and this is probably part of the macho growing up in country New South Wales, as a man, you've got to be strong and tough and don't show your weakness. And I used to think that word follower was weak. I actually now think it's a real strength to be able to follow and be in a team. So yeah, that's really changed my model on that balance between leadership and followership. All right, I don't think we can last too much longer about going into high-performing teams because you're digging into it so much here. Uh, so I was part of a, a, a New Zealand record for unbeaten streak in in any sport. So we went over 272 games unbeaten for men's field hockey. Um, there's there's very few teams anywhere in the world that have gone anywhere near that. Um, and it's quite interesting. I was talking to quite a few of the guys when I was back in New Zealand a couple of weeks ago. And when you talk about leading and following, there were obviously a lot of outstanding individuals in that team. You know, it was uh, from a country town of 5,000 people, but we were beating some of the, you know, the big cities, et cetera, who had access to, you know, 100, over 100,000 people for teams. And they tried every year to try and knock us off. Um, but in certain other teams that some of those people played in or roles they had in corporate, they were the leader. You know, so they were a captain. Um, say I was a captain. But in that team, I, I had a role to play and I was able to separate from being in that leadership role to now being a f like potentially what you might call a follower in a way. And, you know, we knew our roles and we were able to sit in those situations. So when you work with, uh, you know, teams, 
and you're talking about high performing teams where do you start with that for you you know what is a high performing team to you i just pick up did you say 272 games yeah 16 years unbeaten they actually and i didn't realize this because i i did the first five years of that right so i went unbeaten and the year before they lost the final but apparently and i have to go back and do my research that they went five years unbeaten up until that point so they literally lost one game in 21 years i think it is it, it it's is phenomenal there's a podcast in that you need to go and dig uh, into that yeah well, we're about to interview every single one of them and we're going to write a book about it like i, I want to capture oh, while awesome. everyone's alive um because there's multiple like, you know there's some of them that had two generations of family involved in the team uh, there were people that stayed throughout the entire time. Um, it's quite extraordinary, but they're, they're super humble and have lots of humility. So no one really talks about it. So I, I went digging a few weeks ago while I was home and, you know, you could kind of see people kind of realizing, hey, you know, this is special. There is there's no other team in New Zealand. There's maybe, I don't know, we don't know of any other teams in the world at this point. I'm sure there is maybe at an amateur level, but professional, we can't find any. Um, mm. And individually, there's only one person that's gone above that, and that was Jahangir Khan in squash, and he went 555 games without losing, which is extraordinary. And he, and he lost to Ross Norman, I think, from New Zealand was his, the game that, that uh, he lost in. Anyway, so coming back to, to you there, yeah, how would you describe a high-performing team, especially when you go to approach a new team? Yeah, let, let's pull it apart and let's go into individual performance first because a high-performing team as a bunch of competent individuals who all perform at their peak mm. or their top, and then you get that team cohesion. So individual high performance to me is being the best you are capable of as consistently as you are capable of. So mm. you're looking at the performance potential of that that male or female, and then are you getting to the top of that? Now, what, what a lot of teams do, and a lot of athletes do, when they first start is they'll bounce. They'll have a good performance. Let's say it's an eight out of 10 and then they'll drop the next week and they drop to a three and then they might go a six and then they drop to a four. Yeah. But high performance individual is you're constantly locking an eight as, you, as your entry level score. And the second part of that is doing it over time. Then let's look at a sales team. A sales team can have a really good quarter by just working their backsides off uh, early yeah. morning, late night, scrapping, and then they'll burn out three months later. So a true high performance. So when you talk about younger Khan, to do that for 500 plus games, that is ridiculous yeah. as a definition of individual performance. So that's the first bit, Craig, we look at. Are those individuals reaching their performance potential, what they're capable of, and are they doing it consistently? Mm. Then you roll that into what are we doing as a team and have we got the team harmony? So if I look at rugby league, where it's been great to learn this and working with Anthony Seabold now at Manly, if you've got your outside edges and your halves and your middles and, and your, your back five, if, if they are all about to be NRL, they're the best of the best. But then if they're consistently locking in a high-end performance and you have a really clear team plan, trademark, and the big thing with teams, and the US Olympic basketball team is a good example of this when they first started. You had the best basketballers in the world, full stop. Hmm. Like literally those men picked for that team. You'd have, what do they take on a basketball Olympic team? I think it's 12 or so. Yeah, something like that. Yep. Literally 12 of the world's best basketballers, but they were losing because mm. they were so focused on being the rock star in their own team. They didn't come in. And so to, to try and pick up some of the loops we're talking about in, in earlier, there was no followership. Mm. So what I find in teams, whether it's sport, military, business that really work you've got individuals in a psychologically safe environment we can come back to that that's important who then connect together and know their job and and what underpins all this though is there's a real cohesion in the team because you can have some really good individuals in a team but if they all think they're a pack of assholes or they've got this underbiting or backstabbing behind you can go a certain level via fear but eventually you run out of run out of petrol so i've just given you a lot of theories so High performance in a team, it's each individual in a safe place has the opportunity, the coaching, the support to be the best they are capable of as consistently as they are capable of. Then rolling into team, you know your role in the team, leading, following and everything else in between. And there's a really good vibe. It's more than just winning. We often say winning takes care of itself when you look at all the other metrics. Teams that just focus on winning or the scoreboard 
attract the wrong people, create a culture where it's about winning at no cost and then don't have that psychological safety. So when you get all those metrics right, winning is an outcome rather than an obsessive focus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Um, we talk quite often around creating an ecosystem, not an ego system. And so on obviously looking at, you know, the self-worth versus the collective worth. And and obviously when you're an individual and, and if you think about, you know, you, you're a runner, a 100-meter runner, um, you tend to have really high self-worth. The collective worth is not so important. Yes, you need to kind of have that the approach from your support team around you and the relationships but you can tend to have really high self-worth and it's okay as long as you're balancing a few things. Uh, but then when you go into a team environment, you've got to be able to look at balancing that self-worth and collective worth and you need to lift both. Um, so when you think about, you know, you're working with the, the Manly Seagulls rugby league team and for those around the world who don't know what rugby league is, it's, it's uh, similar to rugby if you know what that is. Um, it's a little bit different to the um, gridiron in America. <laughs> um, but, you know, you're literally, you're playing a contact sport where, you know, you need to have really high confidence and you need a lot of power, a lot of strength and and kind of determination to, to back yourself every single day when you're going to get beaten the crap out of you every time you, yeah, you go to war, the, so to speak. The ability to play with injuries and to play hurt. That's something that I've really yeah. learned. That's been different from cricket and other sports that I've done. And that's, so that's a whole skill set in itself. Yeah. So, so balance, you know, when, you, when you're creating that high-performing team, right? So you, you want to make sure people's self-worth because they need that from a confidence perspective. They need that to be able to stand up in those situations under pressure. But balancing collective worth, how do you find that works in a team environment? If you think of three circles, so one is mental skills, and mental skills is so three interconnecting circles. Uh, mental skills is primarily individual, mm -hmm. but that goes towards team, especially around uh, communication, because communication is a skill you can teach, and really getting that that harmony or that glue. So you've got one circle is mental skills. Yeah, the next circle is leadership, and I put in that bracket leading and following, and then the other circle is culture or belonging. Mm. So you've got a you know, Venn diagram of those three circles coming across and intersecting each other. When you have a bunch of men or women who have got a really good understanding of their internal wiring, uh, I say high performance is really an inside job. Because in, in sport, Craig, there's three different components we can train. You know this from your hockey days. One is your craft or your sport. Mm. Now, I was never going to be a great hockey player. Um, you know, I played once at school and hockey told me stick to running so you know so there's the <laughs> craft go sideways. sport yeah, don't go sideways six foot three bent over running not a good look the second one you can train is is your body so strength mm. and conditioning so in any sport they know how to play the game they've got good strength coaches or great strength coaches that's where mindset or mental skills makes a difference so if you can't play the sport if you're not fit fast strong powerful don't get someone like me okay that that's the compounding effect but that's in sport. What about in the corporate world? It is so important to have mental skills mm. because a lot of corporate workers don't get taught this. And to do mental skills, we say you've got to do it in a non-pressurized environment. So then you can draw on those skills. So you front load those cognitive skills when you need them most. But before you step up into the boardroom or you go for a job interview with the board to be the CEO or you're doing the biggest sale of your life, if you're thinking, like, shit, uh, now I need to learn how to be calm because being calm is a totally trainable skill and fundamental to that is I need to activate breath work and shit, let's down. It's way too late. Yeah. You do it months and months and months before. So then when you get into that big pressure moment and you feel the nerves and, and, and you feel the body tense up and the brain starts to go a bit crazy and you doubt yourself with all that negative talk and then you go, huh, I was expecting this, huh. This means I'm pushing myself. And in my back pocket, I now have a repertoire of skills that I can use to calm myself. Because nerves are great. You want mm. some nerves, but you want them flying in formation to work for you. So that's that one circle. And it is so powerful. I'm doing a lot of this in the corporate world, and it has utility. I think corporates love the sporting stories. So they'll ask, what does Tim Zoo do? What does Manly do? The rugby union or cricket as I do. So that gives you context. Mm. But then you bring it back into the corporate world. Main difference, though, in sport, it's 60 minutes, 80 minutes, yeah, four minutes if you're running 1,500 metres or a mile. 
Whereas in the corporate world, it's all day. So it is very different. Yeah. Corporate world is much, much harder because you're on all year round. That's why I think it's so important to get these skills. And then obviously the integration with leadership and culture. And where I see sports changing, and, and I see the corporate world is actually following, is you've got to get an integrated approach. Hmm. You don't just have someone come into your company and go, all oh, right, Sarah and Marie are doing our leadership program. And then we've got all the guys in HR who are doing our teamwork and connectivity. Uh, then we've got this other guy coming in and he's teaching us about mindset. Yeah, if you do have different providers, great, but what's your central message? And that is where you get a real powerful team. And that, when you can come up with a one-page plan or a summary, which is what I do with teams I work with, so then you get everyone from the coach to the assistant coaches or from the CEO to his or her assistant to the staff knowing what is that one-page plan. That's where magic happens. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, you know, when you look at corporate world, it's it's like looking at all different types of sports and throwing them in and every person needs to be capable of doing having the mindset of all of them, right? You, you need to be ready for that 10 second sprint and, and, and how can you be on in that single moment to close a deal to uh, being in for the long haul where you might be on a multi-day adventure race where you're going through the highs and lows of trying to close a multi-million dollar deal um, to uh, you're maybe even looking at say NRL competition, which is, you know, you got so many weeks and then you go into your finals and, and along the way things change. And so I suppose as a corporate, you're kind of in the mix of all of it, aren't you? And it's tough, especially as you go up further up the pointy end. If you're a CEO of a large organization, if you're on a board or you're running one of the big business units, it is tough. And most people survive this, Craig, it's Darwinian theory. So they mm -hmm. work it out over the time. They have some setbacks. They, they maybe pick up some stuff subconsciously. But if you can train this, and you know, one of my real passions, I look back, I got to a good level as a runner, not great. Uh, I won multiple state championships, went to the Institute of Sport, but didn't get through to that next level. And upon reflection, I got to the level that I believed I could, which was winning multiple state championships. So I, I firmly believe you teach what you're good at and you teach what you stuff up. So I've combined, I've been good at performance and I've stuffed it up by mm. not going to that next level. I do not like... In fact, I detest, keeps me awake at night when I see people leaving talent on the track. So that's what it is that fuels me. And I think learning these skills around psychology and where it's really moving, thank goodness, psychology for so long has been deficit. Mm. And a lot of this, when you look at the, the origin of it, goes to Second World War, where we needed men and women who had been at war, prisoners of war, with support around uh, problem areas around stress, anxiety, depression. But then psychology became known as, oh, if you've got a problem, see a psychologist. But even way back when they first looked at psychology as a science, there were both sides. There was also the, the flourishing side or the performance side. And not until Martin Seligman was watering his lawn, the story goes one day and his young daughter asked him a question and then he said, well, you go put your shoes on or go inside. And then she said, Dad, you know, you're the president of the American Psychology Association. Why do you always look at what's wrong? Apparently, selling mm. just, ah, the water went everywhere. And you thought, God, yeah, we've just been so focused on problems with psychology, but we can also look at that performance or positive psychology to help us perform. So, yeah, I look at this as a skill. Wouldn't it be great if our kids learn these frameworks at school? I, I can remember volume equals four-thirds pi r cubed. So I'm really good at filling up a tank. I'm the guy to ring if you want a formula to fill up a tank. But I've never been asked to fill up a tank in my life. Yeah. And at 40 years of age, and I've you know, been decades of high performance with running and working with the Australian cricket team and the Sydney Swans and building and selling businesses. And then I went through a marriage breakdown and I didn't have the schema. I didn't have the muscle memory to help me through adversity. I didn't learn these skills at mm. school. So I, I think I'm getting all philosophical on you, but if we can teach graduates, if we can teach young kids that your brain is totally trainable. And, and Craig, if you wanted your body to be fit, fast, flexible, and strong, you go to the gym, get a personal trainer, do a sport, you know, you go on an adventure race. If you want your brain to be fit, fast, flexible, and strong, you've got to train your brain. And, and that's where mental skills is now really evolving. And it excites me. Yeah, it's good. I still remember first psychologist I went into and, and a really good man, um, still good friends with, but I remember the question being, uh, what can I help you fix? 
And I just responded straight away and I said, I'm doing this really well. I want to understand why I'm doing this well so I can bring those skill sets to apply it to other areas as an athlete. And I kind of took that person back and actually changed the way they looked at um, the way they did their work. And I, and I find this sometimes a lot with coaches, like in the corporate world, we see a lot of coaches, you know, they go through um, certain membership bodies of coaching training and all they want to do is dig in and, and understand your problem. And I'm like, well, there are times for that, but you know, why really good coaches in sport do a good job is because they are able to understand what the strengths are of someone they will then identify why that's working and then try and help apply that to other areas so they can um, progress. You know, I was a, an international triathlete, um, which is obviously quite opposite to field hockey. Um, but in that sense, you know, like I, I could have worked my butt off running and maybe got a few small games, but it would have been to the detriment of my swimming and cycling, were, were, which were such strengths for me. So it was always that balance of, you know, do you focus on the strengths or do you... Mm-hmm. Um, and along the way hope that you're or not hope but kind of try and bring up the weakness or do you focus on the weakness and 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 hope that the strengths stay there i think a great coach has range Mm. it's not either or it's and so a great coach or a great leader will see and and i don't want your listeners to have any doubt that in sport when i say about a psychologically safe culture and you know you want everyone connecting and it's collegiality if a player's not performing they're told and they're told bluntly whereas in the corporate world we dance around it and go oh craig and you know mate, i'd like you to lift your sales target and everything else and hey look i know you're really trying and then we get out and i backstab the living daylights out of you in the corridor but in sport it's it's, it's immediate it's blunt at mm. times we tell you and then we move on but then good coaches will also know then when to focus on on the positives and to double down on the strengths. And that's the art of coaching is knowing yeah. there's times I've got to give feedback. It's got to be immediate. It's got to be blunt. You drop a player, one of two things happens. That player bounces back and goes, yeah, I know I've been dropped. I'm going to really work on that. Or well, that player gets stuck in a self-fulfilling loop. Oh, uh, they're against me. The world's against me. And that player probably won't play the following year. So when a player gets dropped, how they respond, either way is their fault. You know, if they get back up, it's their fault. If they don't get back up, it's their fault. And that's one of the things I love about sport that I think we can import more into the corporate world. When I hear organizations say we do a 360 degree review, I just I cringe and I just bang my head against a wall and go, my God, really? What about the other 364 days about having some immediate feedback around? Correct. That? Yeah. So for leaders in the corporate world, I don't want them thinking, oh, sport and corporate are the same. Corporate's actually much, much harder. We can get into that in a moment. Mm. But but when I'm asked, like, what is the difference or what can business learn from sport? It's learning agility. Yeah. In in sport, you, you'll have multiple games. And if you lose, you've got to then go, right, okay, what did we do well? What didn't we do well? How do we now get ready for next week? And you go again. And then you wipe the board clean and you go again. So there is a real learning agility. Whereas a corporate entity it can be off track with their targets or sales for six months and then they have a crisis meeting and then they cut numbers and then you know, it's a big, big, slow-moving base. So that's one thing your listeners can bring in is that agility and that constant feedback. Yeah, the tight feedback loop and how you can integrate that in you know, on a daily basis, You know, not every single day, but on a regular, a regular basis um, that you are able to give that immediate feedback. And just thinking back to... You know, high-performing teams in regards to a lot of times people go, oh, high-performing team that's winning. Um, there's not really any tension. Uh, they're, they're not having any issues. Um, but my experience with high-performing teams is they have as much tension, sometimes more, but their ability to deal with it quickly and openly is the reason why they um, they can they can progress and they can stay connected as a team. Um and I'll add one other aspect to it. They're able to separate the problem from the person. So they'll deal with the problem, but there's no personal attack. There's no, um, after the game or after that situation, they move on because they know that if they focus on that tension, they focus on that problem, it's just it's detracting them away from what they need to do to win as a team. Yeah, I'm going to quote one of your fellow Kiwi expats, Owen Eastwood. Do you know Owen? Yeah, yeah. And... 
I interviewed Owen on my podcast on performance intelligence about three months ago, and it was profound. And we're having a conversation about this. And I said, well, what, what do you think around high-performing teams? And we teased that out. And he actually said, I despise the word high-performing teams. I went, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. And then Owen further unpacked. He said, because if it's just focus clearly on the sales targets, on market penetration, or let's say it's sport, it's about winning in a defined period of time. And then you've got a terrible culture. People mm. treat each other horribly. You've got these toxic environments. He said, how can you call that high performance? Mm. So I love that, that Owen's looked at all those metrics that sit behind it. And that, that's why when we go back to those circles, when you've got the mental skills, so you can adapt your thinking, mm. and it's primarily you as an individual can control your state. And then when you've got leadership and that balance between leadership and followership, and then you've also got culture that underpins that, that's sustainable. Because I've seen this, and I, I worked yeah. with a team a number of years ago, and I, I won't mention that team, um, but this team got to a grand final, a major grand final, but then everyone just ran out of gas because the coach was pushing everyone on fear and the coach was using emotion, but in a non-sustainable way, Yeah, looking over your shoulder, like people jumping at shadows. And then the the wheels stop moving after a set period of time. So that's why I really I I, I honor Owen with what he said on that. It was foundation. I can still remember that interview. Mm. You want high performance, but I think you also want the sustainability piece. Yeah. And to have that 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 team environment. And and it's not all great, like just to think, hey, we've got to have a wonderful, uh, happy functioning zoo. Because we know teams that are too buoyant and celebrate too much don't get results either. So it's getting that that middle balance. Mm. But it's 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 not being obsessive about performance and then having all the collateral damage around it. Yeah, and it's not. It's also not saying that everyone will get along with each other equally and spend as much time with each other equally. They don't. Like they, you'll still have little groups who um, are able to connect and communicate and um and work together in a better way than others will but there's that collective time and place where they know we're on now this is it this is what we do and we're we're bringing our best for this team what what do we require right now what is it what is my role right now to make this work um you know it's and it's interesting too like the the social when i look back to that hockey team right the the social component of it too was a huge part of it um, as well it, it was the the male and the female teams um, it was the whole community involved and then it was just something that went beyond the team to the support network around it the um, the greater community versus just it's just our team um, don't get in our way type thing so, so can we run that model through your team and i'm flipping it like you're the interviewer right now I'll flip it now <laughs> Yep. when you think about that model around the the, the framework on mental skills, which yep. is really how do you perform consistently under pressure? Yeah. And then you look at that leadership, followership, teamwork balance, and then culture, which is the glue. You know, you can feel the culture, you smell the culture, you see the culture. Yep. Did you guys have all three? Yeah, I'd say we would. I'd say we would. And, you know, even though it's interesting, there was one person who was the captain and who would – you would say was the main glue of the team in a way, but he was also a follower at times. Like he wasn't always in a situation where I'm right. And they were without being titled leaders, there were probably four or five really strong leaders in there that played their role that everyone had respect for. And it wasn't one person on their own. And then there were others in that group who, who never looked for the limelight. Um, who were able to complement the skills of the really talented people in there. Um, and it was a focus on, it wasn't about beating another team. It was always focused on how do we improve? And to some respects, it's very similar to the All Blacks, um, what they went through for many years as well, where they were focused on how do we take the game to the next level? So there was a, everyone else is trying to catch up to where you were and you were already five, five years ahead mm. type thing. And I think we had a huge approach around that. Um, so the leadership followership, we knew we knew our time and place. And as I said, a lot of us were leaders in other areas, whether it was working in a bank, whether it was running a business, whether it was captain of other sports teams, 
but in that moment we knew exactly where we needed to be and what was required to to bring the best out of each other um, from that one, perspective yeah one other example just circling in my head is icu intensive care unit and dr mm. tom buckley tom's associate professor at sydney uni but he's worked in icu for nearly 30 years and tom taught me this that you'll have an anaesthetist you'll have a specialist you'll have a triage nurse or you'll have an intern and they'll all take turns in being in charge or leadership mm. and others will follow and it's not the oh you're the most senior specialist doctor here let's listen to you no 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 they're, they're this this dance tom calls it and that's all the training yeah but the right person stepped in at the right time i think that's a really good functioning model yeah. of leadership in action the other thing i just close out uh, you just dawned another little memory you take me down memory lane today, Craig. That's good. Paul Ruse. Yep. Now, there's a game that we play in Australia for all your Kiwi audience called <laughs> AFL, okay? There's, there is more than rugby union, people. <laughs> You're bloody good at it. But Paul Ruse, when he came in as coach of the Sydney Swans, and he'd been a player, and some of the players, younger players who were still there, when Ruse started, they were younger players. Now they were more the statesmen or the elderly players. So he's now coach of his teammates former teammates mm. and and his first saying to the group was i'm here to be liked so i'm here to be respected not liked mm. i've got enough friends and i don't spend enough time with them yeah but with you guys it's not about being liked. i'm going to make some decisions that a lot of you aren't going to appreciate but if you respect me we're going to have a functioning footy team so yeah. I've, I've always taken that it's the difference between being liked and respected yeah another question around this like um it's not a it's not a right to belong to a team or that you should be in a team and about the importance of earning yeah. your respect or earning the trust of the team uh i know where a number of quite good players um and i'm going to go back to this team because it's just kind of in my forefront at the moment and and when I was talking to the, the some of the people in that team over the the long period of the sixteen or twenty one year or in the twenty one years in a way, and they talked about the ones who struggled to fit in were those who felt like they had a right to be there, and for them it was important for them to understand that you needed to earn your way into the team, no matter how good you are or what your experience was. Um, which is quite an interesting kind of approach because we, you know, nowadays it's more oh, like, you know, everyone's got an equal opportunity, et cetera. But the importance of earning the respect and trust to fit in a team. I mean, um, yeah, I'll let you go on that because I've got too many ideas going okay. through my head right now. Have you got children? I have a six-month baby girl. Congratulations. You're still functioning. Look at you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a few more gray hairs and yeah. uh, a little bit more weight around the belly. Uh, so, so those obviously listen to a podcast, what they can't see, we've got the video on, which is always a good way to build rapport when you're doing a podcast, but you look very fresh, Craig. So you must have mood lighting or something, or you've, you've had a good sleep last night. Um, I have four kids and three gifts i think i want to give my kids so, so one is just that association with movement that movement is fun mm. i don't care if they're elite athletes in fact between you and i i think it's sometimes better if your kids aren't elite athletes there's a whole bunch of problems and challenges we can talk about another day but i, I want my kids to do sport yep. and especially a team sport because when i moved from the track to cricket I just realized, gosh, I've been so self-focused, self-centered, borderline selfish as an individual athlete. Now I've got teamwork and we don't drink Gatorade, we drink beers. Wow. But what, what are you talking about? It was it was great. So so skill number one, I, I want my kids to have movement is fun. Mm. You know, you, you, two, you want them to have love and to feel loved. Yeah. And three is is I want them to work hard and to develop resilience and know that life isn't easy. Mm. And there's a load of research around that this, but you know, when you and I were young fellas, if you won the race at the school carnival, you got a blue ribbon. If you got second, it was red. And if you got third, it was green. Mm. And then if you missed out on red or blue, sorry, missed out on blue or red or green, you'd work your backside off the following year. Now everyone gets a participation award. Well done, Craig. You got 27th, so here's a ribbon. So then Craig goes home and goes, I don't have to try, and I get a ribbon. Yeah, And and this is a big problem I see, and I'm on yeah. my hobby horse, so cut Good. me off, mate, Keep if going. I go too hard. 
a huge problem I see with some of the companies I work with and graduate recruit programs, the the younger generation, and, and I'm not just saying it's all black and white, but largely who haven't had this feedback that, no, that's not good. You know, Johnny, everything you do isn't wonderful. You know? I'm not putting your shitty picture up on the fridge, mate. It's actually not a good drawing. You're not going to be an artist. And then Johnny... Johnny gets into a consulting firm or a bank and gets some feedback, which you need to grow and learn and adapt. And then he puts in a bullying claim. And I could talk about that a lot longer as well. So I, I think if we can give our kids those three gifts, that movement is an opportunity and should be fun. Two, you obviously want them to love and to be loved and have that intimacy and connection and emotions. And the third one, though, is, look, if I work hard, I get rewarded. Mm. And there's a relationship with that. And in fact, we know goal attainment theory. The biggest thing about that is is aiming for the goal there's a lot of olympic athletes who are only focused on the achievement if they don't have anything else in their life they finish the olympics and they call it post-olympic depression mm. so but back to your question but i i think acknowledging that in the workforce or with teams it's not always going to be easy but having the conversation around that and actually working on resilience and working on on toughness and grit and actually making people work hard and get rewarded for it I think that's really, really important. It's a real fine balance. Um, and it'd be interesting, you know, you look at a lot of leaders right now or CEOs, et cetera, and companies, and they're dealing with this, right? They they understand the importance of resilience and the drive and to, um, to reward people for, you know, actually doing something well. But then they're, they're faced with this in the back of their mind, well, how hard do I push before I end up with a lawsuit on my table? How, you know, mm. where does this sit? And it's quite a challenging space to sit in for some uh, some leaders, uh, depending on the size of the company and, and what you're dealing in, but it can be a real challenge. Any thoughts around how they can approach this? I, I, I pause because I could go down the controversial, uh, stirring people and I could go really compassionate. So let's find somewhere in between, we'll find the middle ground. There's a book I read many years ago by a guy named Larry Wingett, who's this guy from deep South in America, and his book is called, it's called Work for a Reason. Um, and you open it up and he's around this whole, like he's in your face, but it's called Work for, like you've got a job, don't forget that, you know, you're given a job. And you you mentioned before about earn. I know Billy Slater talks about this and as a New South Welshman, I can't believe I'm quite in Queensland. So you might have to edit this bit out for me because I won't be able to listen back. But Billy Slater talks to all the players when they come into the Queensland camp. You guys have earned this. You, you've played hard, tough footy for decades. You've earned the right to put the Queensland jersey on. Any team that I work with, Craig, and not just sport. I was in the boardroom with a large Australian energy company yesterday with their executive team. And I'm really conscious before I walk into that environment, it's an opportunity. It's it's a privilege to work with mm. these people. Now, it doesn't mean I'm subservient, but but I, I every single time I get booked for a keynote, we send someone a card or a, a gift like flowers or a healthy gift to say thank you. And it's genuine mm. because I appreciate that they're supporting my business uh, because they don't have to. And back to the group yesterday, they're all paid a hell of a lot of money, like some of them in the seven figures. And when I did the check-in, honestly, it was like that they hadn't been paid. And, and, and I listened. And you, know, you have that what's called social contagion theory. The mm. way we show up is how others show up. There's mirror neurons in the front part of our cerebral cortex. So as a leader, if you show up energized and opportunistic and looking forward, guess what? Your direct reports start to model that. If you show up saying everyone's an asshole and the world's against me and you know, aggressive and tired, like that team I mentioned before, everyone starts to become the same. So after this group yesterday done the check-in, I just sort of stood up to change state. I went, when did you guys stop accepting a salary? And so look, because I, I I needed to whack them with with a jolt. What do you mean? Well, you're obviously all working for free because you're telling me how bad it is, how hard it is. So uh, the bit I missed in your story, when did they stop paying you? Like hundreds of thousands of dollars or some of you, I know you get paid millions. So w when did the company and the board cut off your, your paycheck? And they sort of looked at me and one lady said, well, what do you mean? We're getting paid. I went, oh, I missed that bit. Because everything you've just told me sounds like drudgery, sounds like a chore. Um, you should leave. 
seriously, there's the door. And, and it was, you know, that moment when you're facilitating, you think this is going to go either way. And I didn't have this plan, but it was, it was probably the most negative check-in I've done. And look, mm. to give the credit, this group's going through major change, new CEO, new executive team, new, bar, it's all new. Yeah. And at the end, the, the CFO came up and said, thank you. She said, we needed that because we've all been here getting carried away and how awful it is. I said, it's social contagion theory. What concerns me is your thousands of employees that are now like this, go fix it, you know? Yeah. Um, and wrapping those two together, I think we sometimes forget that when you're in a job, and I saw this when I worked at KPMG and Consulting, that you had people and companies I work with who've been there for 20, 25 years, and they suddenly start getting this entitlement, and it's really dangerous. Mm. It's really dangerous. When you start thinking you're owed, that the clock starts ticking on you when your time is going to be no longer needed. Yeah, fascinating. Fascinating. You know, working across both sport, you know, you're talking about defense, you're talking about um, corporate life. Do you see any differences in regards to leadership or is it a leader in any of those areas are similar? Um, yeah, what do you notice? I answer that level. I answer that question on two levels because I'm I'm often asked, "What's the difference between sport and corporate?" I'll do that first, and then I'm going to tell you how you create the superhuman combining all those different worlds. Of um, I've been thinking about this, and you're the first person I'm going to tell. And based on your response, it might be the only time I tell. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, I'm asked regularly, uh, what's the difference between corporate and and sport?" Corporate's so much harder sports have off seasons for at least three or four months. You know, our rugby union players might have four or five months. Some of them go play Europe. Uh, you look at Olympic athletes, they'll do the Olympics and they'll have a couple of months off. Whereas most corporate workers will get four, four weeks off. Um, you know, corporate workers might work 50, 60, 70 hour weeks. The athletes train for a couple of hours. Uh, athletes are footballers, they play for 80 minutes, whereas your corporate workers are playing in inverted commas for 60, 70 hours. So the intensity at corporate, it's it's not as high as it is or the pressure is at sport, but there's no downtime. They're always on. Mm -hmm. So corporate work generally is much harder than sport as far as sustaining. Second, what do we learn from sport? It's that learning agility I spoke about before, that we won the game, we lost the game, we got another game this week. How do we reset? And I reckon that's an area that corporate can really learn from other than just having the annual review is, is coming back at least every month and having that agility. And we often wax lyrical in the corporate world. We're agile thinkers, we're blue ocean think, blah, blah. But when you really put people down to it and COVID was the experiment, Craig, that showed this, people freaked out because they mm. just hadn't, hadn't trained for change. So make change a fundamental part of your organization. When I get a brief, oh, Andrew, can you help us be change ready? I'm like, you've missed the boat. You know, the world is changing constantly. So that's the first thing. Uh, corporate world is much harder than sport because of the intensity. And what we learn from sport is that mental agility. Now let's step back. If we could create a superhuman, think of a, a year. I'd get them to have three months at, a, at an institute of sport or a sporting academy and go and learn about exercise physiology and base level mental skills and nutrition and all that human performance. So the underpinning of that, yeah. Then I'd get them to go and work in the military, go work in defense for three months. And you're going to learn about leadership and followership. And I've learned so much and, and I really am grateful. And, and I said to you before, before I step into rooms, I, I pause and I just think, it's a bit like that show that was on uh, TV, which is coming back with Celia Pacola. Thank God you're here. You know, they put you in a room and you go, where am I? And you've got about five seconds to adapt and you're flying a plane or you're in a restaurant. But I have that, oh, thank God I'm here moment. And, and how good is this? I've learned so much from the military around structure, around discipline, around missions, that the military will have a mission, Craig, and they'll go to the Middle East or the Chinese Sea for three months, and then they'll come back and they'll have another mission. And I've adapted that in my business. So one of my missions is in my, my startup, StriveStronger.com, uh, I want to get a CEO to for me to step aside and a CEO to take over. And originally when I thought that, I thought, oh God, what are people going to think? Is he not 
interested in his business. No, no, I love the business, but I've got it to where I think I can. It now needs a different skill set. So that's a mission and that language I've learned from the military. So three months at a sports academy where you learn so much about human performance. Three months in the military where you learn about team and goal setting and mission and everything around that. Then I reckon three months with a high-performing sporting team. Because yeah, at the sports academy, you're learning more about the physiology. Then go and work with the All Blacks or yeah, a team like that, a high-performing team. Well, I'd say Ireland now, they're beating the All Blacks. And actually see how you pull in you know, the physiology, the training, and the teamwork and, and how that works together. And then I'd say three months in an executive team. And I reckon if you could do that, because in an executive team, then you're going to have like really intelligent people the hardest thing for execs and CEOs of big companies is task switching and mm. jumping from a board meeting to an, an investor phone call to doing a media update to talking to a graduate in the lift in the elevator. And, and that graduate, who's one of your 50,000 employees, will remember that micro moment for the rest of their life. So if you're not present in that moment and look them in the eyes and say, Craig, how are you? And how's your day going? They'll think you're a rude, toxic so-and-so. So... At that level as well, it's just the the ability to move quickly and articulate. So yeah, there, there's there's my theory to create the superpower. Go spend three months in each of those worlds. Nice. I feel like you're missing one thing, one thing from that, and that is to go into an environment where you're leading volunteers for three months. Oh, I, I well one, I love being challenged. Two, I, I love that. So talk to me about that. What do you, what did you learn from being in the volunteer world? Well, volunteering, right? You, you're people are there generally because they're interested in it. There's a, there's some sort of passion or reason for being there, but they're not being paid to be there, so they've got no real strong attachment. You know, and, and if if things get uh, if challenges come up, they're going to go back to, oh, do I have enough food on my table? So they'll go back mm -hmm. to the one that pays, and so the ability to manage volunteers, I think, if you can v manage them, you can manage anyone in the world. Yeah. So you've just stretched out my induction program from 12 months to 15 months. <laughs> and maybe maybe stick them in a submarine for, for three months and see how they survive in, the, in a world where they can't get off. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd lose a lot. I, I, I've got to know the, the submarine guys and they're a different beast. They really uh, they certainly are. Yeah, no, I'd scratch the last one. But uh, no, that's good. I, I love the approach on there. Now, um, obviously, you've written a book around match fit. Um, what does it mean to be match fit in the year 2023? Dr. Tom Buckley, who I mentioned before, the example from ICU. Tom is associate professor at Sydney Uni. So we wrote the book Match Fit, came out about six months before COVID hit. And during COVID, my business lost 90% of revenue mm. because the old business model was 50 or 60 keynotes on stages around Australia and, and, and now different parts around the world, mm. two or three high-end leadership programs and coaching. It was all live. And I feel archaic and old and a bit of a dinosaur. Like it was all live. I'd go to Melbourne multiple times at KPMG. I went to Singapore. I went to New Zealand in my time at KPMG more than a dozen times for meetings, meetings like fly across the ditch or the Dutch for three hours to have a 60 minute meeting. Isn't that crazy? Now we just do a, a meeting like that. So match fit, we didn't realize was going to be the precursor to help us get through losing the whole business. And what it means is being physically and psychologically ready for whatever comes at you. Yeah. So those people that were match fit and match fit is a metric as a metric, it's being five years younger your biological age five years younger than your chronological age and the other metric is also your psychological flexibility or that mental flexibility so there's a metric that people do with the book but it's more than a metric it's a way of living like to be match fit is there's six areas that's really interesting you've sort of tapped in you're, you're good because you've got me to go back to my childhood and you've asked me some questions I had no idea you're going to ask. And now I'm realizing, aha, I see what he's doing. Uh, but the six levers are move, fuel, recharge, think, connect, and play. So if you think about that, you've got to do regular physical activity. Yeah, we know that. Um, you've got to eat the right foods and eating for performance rather than eating to you know, burst your pants. Thinking is all around the whole mental skills. And that's really evolved a lot since I wrote the book. 
and recharge because stress is awesome as long as you have recovery. Mm. Uh, connection, no man, no woman is in an island and COVID showed us that. And, and the sixth lever, and Dr. Tom and I had some very robust conversation on this, robust meaning he thought I was an idiot and I thought he was a stuffy academic because <laughs> he's going... We can't have play in a book. He, like he's Irish, and he actually said, <laughs> "He said, fuck me." Like you don't have to. Um, when he swears, you don't have to bleep it out because people don't actually realise he's swearing. But yeah, fuck me. <laughs> How can we have play? Fuck me. We're not having play in it so with my research. And, and how's that? I said, you can go and find the research, but I'm telling you now, play is a fundamental part of being a, an interesting, long living giving back to your environment human. And I just said to him, kids play. Kids have play dates, play dough, play time. They watch play school and they have play lunch. Adults, we do meetings on teams. That's it. It's a really boring story. So we had a lot of fun with the play lever. <laughs> I can tell you, and you've gone through this where, you know, having a six month baby girl and uh, gee, I, I love the fact that I am remote working and, and don't have an office and I can work from home and I can be around her all day. Um, there's some big challenges to that as well, by the way. Um, Look, and just, just as a dad, uh, having, so I've got 15-year-old Michaela, Archie's 12, and you notice I'm looking up, I have to think. <laughs> <laughs> Sophia's three years and gorgeous little Mitty's 19 months. Yep. I just say to people now, from experience, I could tell you what to do around sleep and around mindset and all this stuff, but just suck it up, big guy. You got to suck it up for four or five years, yep. and then it becomes a distant memory, and it, it all gets better. <laughs> yeah, thanks. But I mean that that power of play. You know, like this week, um, you know, over the last week we, we've had twenty to twenty-four degrees in the middle of winter, which is, you know, I'm up on the central coast. It, you know, generally it sits in the in the teens, and you know, so we've been t-shirt and shorts. So we've been down the beach every day, and she's you know playing and. Um, I think she got by the fourth time we went to the beach, she was trying to not just play with the sand. She just wanted to eat it, like literally <laughs> go. But um, that, that exploration, I, I think, is so important and the ability to expose ourselves to a new environment, uh, I think, is so crucial. We get so many people that just go and do the same thing, the Groundhog Day every single day and that ability to to keep the mind fresh and and the, the nervous system flowing, I suppose, in a way is, is so important. Yeah, and you look at kids like you look at your gorgeous little daughter. She'll learn so much. It's ridiculously that that adaptation, the neural adaptation, and then we get to adulthood and we just check in and don't learn anything. Yeah, yeah. So on that, uh, we all know smart people have great answers, uh, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? I've listened to your podcast and I know you asked this. And I was trying to think, and I thought, I've got to be authentic. I can't remember. I, I, the, the, the biggest one I can remember was a few years ago. I uh, swam the English Channel as a middle-distance runner. That was really challenging. But that that's uh, going back a couple of years. I can't think in the last few years when I really did something different. But there's one coming up. Because otherwise you're gonna go. This this performance coach is full of shit. You know, everyone's going. Oh, he's got all the answers. What? What? He's teaching. I talk about the same game, right? You have you wake up in the same house in the same bed next to the same person, and if you're in a committed relationship, that's how you should start the day. But then you have the same shower in the same bathroom. You wear the same clothes. You go to the same office. You order the same coffee. The same middle-aged men say the same stupid jokes to the same baristas. It's called competition up the road. You have the same meetings at eight thirty a.m. And people go, Oh my god, stop! This is my day. And so then. I, I I knew that question and I was like, ah, oh, but here's one. I um I'm just about to start working in Japanese rugby, which I'm really excited about. And I'm learning Japanese. And it's exciting me and scaring the living daylights out of me because I've spoken to the coach about a goal in year two, being able to deliver mental skills in really bad Japanese. And that has totally lit up different parts of my brain, like jumping around going, shit exciting but also yeah it's a it's, it's the biggest stretch i think i've given myself in quite some time yeah yeah it's good and and uh my best advice in this having lived in english non-english countries uh is that you'll learn how to get your message across in so many other ways you'll learn so much about communication it's not just the language i'm speaking about here because if you need to use interpreters for instance 
Yes, they might say the similar words, but it will translate differently. And emotion is not bought through translation in most cases. And so you're going to have to figure out how to, obs mm. your observation skills are going to go through the roof um, and awareness. So, yeah. Where, where, where did you live? Uh, so I lived in Taiwan, Saudi Arabia and Thailand. Um, Taiwan, I had, and then we can have another conversation on this another day where I literally got the head coach role, had been working with some of the athletes for a couple of years, went to the National Training Center. There's 800, 800 athletes and staff. There were two foreigners in there. One was a Belarusian boxing coach, and then there was me. Uh, day one, I, and initially they'd said, look, you've got full reins, but you tell us what you need, and you can run the whole program, etc." I get there day one, they go, oh, by the way, those five athletes you've been working with for the last couple of years, they're going with this coach to China for the next three months. You've got these three athletes. And all they spoke in English was hello. And I had maybe oh, probably about 40 words of Mandarin at that point. Wow. And no translator, no support team, nothing. And so that was the next three months. And, you know, with they're like our kids now. Um, but I learned so much about communication and I didn't need to speak a single word. It was phenomenal. Okay. So anyway, another day. Yeah. Um, what is one question that you would love to solve? Why are so many people lonely? Ooh, deep. I like that one. In a, in a world that has never been so connected, a friend of mine last year, she's just turned 40. She's a stunning-looking woman but, and a stunning woman. She's beautiful inside and out. And she said to me, Andy, I'm 39 at this stage. I've got 5,000 friends on Instagram. she got about 750 friends on Facebook. Yeah, I can't find anyone to go out to dinner with on Saturday night. Wow. That's and sad. there's more loneliness now. We've, we've never been more connected from a technology point of view, but in mm. many ways we've never been more disconnected. Mm. I don't normally talk during this one, but I, I see the young generation who have grown up in a digital, supposedly connected world are going to start switching off digital in the next 10 years. And you're going to see them, they will use it when they have to, but they will move away from it because they will, um, and it's interesting because our generation are going the other way, right? But I will, uh, we're going the opposite way. We go more towards digital, but I think they'll go away from it. That That's my... As a father, I hope you're right. Mm. I really do. That's what I'm saying. Uh, for you, what is an inspiring great leader and who is a great example of this for you? I think a great leader... I look at the word inspirare, the, the Latin word where inspire comes from, which means to breathe life into. So a great leader breathes life into, gives you belief, gives you enough encouragement and confidence, but then they push the bike without training wheels and then you've got to learn how to ride it yourself. And a person that comes to mind for me is, is a man named Martin Shepherd. So when I sold... The performance clinic into kpmg martin was going to be my boss he was going to be the head of innovation but during that period unbeknown to me because it was confidential he got headhunted um mm. by spotless catering and he uh, ended up going there as ceo so i never actually got to work for him at that stage uh we'd now do do some work together but marty's been a great leader for me he actually gave me the belief that i could go to kpmg and and i could learn a whole new skill set and at times he's given me some sharp feedback you know like in sport you don't always get told you're doing a great job and and i look at him now he's just been appointed the chair of kpmg australia and he's constantly learning so he has that learning agility mm. so if i round out i think a great leader has two things one is they have the ability to empower and inspire others but two they they actually lead by example and they put the 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 skills into practice so for me Martin Shepard is definitely that person. Outstanding. Uh, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? The best way is to go to my webpage, andrewmay.com, and you can find about the presentations I do, the programs I do as well. So that's the first way, go to andrewmay.com. And for those people that are still listening, and if they want to listen more, but they're still listening <laughs> with all the jokes, we got a bit controversial, so they're, they're, they're hanging in there. 
uh, I have a podcast called Performance Intelligence, and you can find Performance Intelligence on your major podcast platform. And like you, you know, doing podcast, it's a love. I don't think people have any idea how much hard work goes behind it, but it's so rewarding as well. So I've actually really enjoyed being on the other side. And and uh, I know you don't ask for this, but I'm going to give you the feedback. But the way you've set this up, it is really professional. You gave a framework on what we might ask. You've asked me a few curly ones today. And I've gone, huh, I wasn't expecting that. I like that. And then I saw the glint in your eye go up, going, yeah, I tried to get him. Uh, <laughs> but I've really enjoyed the process. And it's been a, a really nice conversation. So thumbs up to you. You're doing a great job. And it's been been really enjoyable being on this. Oh, thank you very much. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, Andrew. I... I love hearing about your childhood and the experiences you had as a as a runner, you know, finding yourself, oh, gee, I can be a little bit better at this by applying myself to going through a phase of trying to be the best you possibly could as an athlete, but then trying to figure out how could you help other people become better and to really think about not just, you know, being a psychologist or mental skills coach and just focusing on the mind, but how do you bring both mind and body together and then being able to transcend that across not just in sport but also into other areas like the the defense force into corporate world and for you also being your own uh entrepreneur and and being acquired by a, a very big company in the name of kpmg i love the fact that you challenge the status quo that you're not afraid to share um your thoughts on it and but do it in a way that's respectful i think that's really really important there's there's different ways of approaching things in the world and and i think there's a way to challenge it but do it in a a respectful way that is both humble um and so people get that chance to look at what is possible in this world and to do it maybe in a better way um so thank you um i see you as an inspiring great leader so thank you very much for a great conversation today it's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.